Welcome to episode number 28 of El Police Radio. I'm your host, Alpha Mike. What are we going to be looking at on this episode? Well, we're looking at these motorcycle clubs that resemble one percenters. What's a one percenter? Well, it's kind of somebody that doesn't conform to the rules and regulations of society. So why are law enforcement groups patched up, riding, and looking like one percenters? How long has this been going on? And is it acceptable behavior? Well, we're going to look at that, plus all the other stuff that we always look look at here on L Police Radio. Let's go. MCIC, episode number 28. And like always, we've got a lot to talk about. But today, like I said in the intro, we're looking at these groups. And we're going to ask one fundamental question. Why would I want to look like a bad guy? So that's interesting, and we're going to look at that. Got a lot of... uh, Issues happening, of course, on the news. The news is always full of all kinds of adventures. But we're going to primarily going to concentrate a little bit on this story in the news, too. So we're going to backtrack on some old news that did come out in the media. And uh, we're going to read that article. And we're going to talk about it. The article actually came out in 2015. And we're going to see, have there been any changes? How long has this phenomenon been going on uh, with motorcycling and police officers, correctional officers, federal agents, what have you, why are they resembling MC one percenters? Now, where did the uh, term one percenters come from? Well, that came from the American uh, Motorcycles Association back in I think in 1948, where it said that the outlaws uh, were ruly motorcycle riders. They were only 1% uh, troublemakers. The other 99% were law-abiding citizens. I kind of disagree on that 1% issue today. I think it's grown. I don't think it's 1% anymore. I, I kind of even feel it's a lot larger than that 1%. But the issue is, 
why is law enforcement looking like that? I mean, I don't know if, if, if you ever ran into that, seen that. But it looks a little disturbing to me. So we're going to discuss that and some other issues. Of course, we'll have the training trip, 09 training tip. And uh, we definitely will always have the conversation on this program as well. Always full of information here. What are we doing? Well, on L Police Radio, what we do is we build libraries of content, stuff that you can relate back to, you can look at, you can obtain some type of knowledge of information. You should grow on it every day. And what we're here for is to help you grow, give you that content. So lpoliceradio.com, that's our address. You can look us up. You can scroll down to the bottom. The social uh, icons will pop up. Um Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff out there. And you can connect to us and be a part of this crew. Why would you want to do that? Well, there's so many subjects we're touching here. This is not just a one-based podcast show. This has an array of shows, subject matters on law enforcement, affecting law enforcement, especially One of the things that we do here the most is we alert you to the number one danger in law enforcement circles today, and that is politics and how its ugly head has twined and entered law enforcement circles into a department near you. But now hear the news. Well, just picking off on the last episode, we had number 27 of uh, American Mob Life in America and dealing in law enforcement. We've got an article here in relation to that. Mobster who ratted out cousin in Goodfellas Heist gets probation. Now, this is going way back from the movie of uh, Goodfellas. Uh, I think that was back in the uh, 80s or 90s. Uh, with Martin Scorsese over 20 years ago. I know that. But basically, aging Banano Capo, Vinny Osario, got a walk for his role in the infamous 1978 Lufthansa air cargo heist when a Brooklyn jury acquitted him in 2015. And on Monday, the turncoat cousin who ratted him out for the feds rolled out of court with just three years probation for the same robbery. Gaspar Valentin who faced up to 20 years behind bars on Rock and Deer charges, got a sweetheart deal after agreeing to turn government witness against Cesario and a steady stream of others other since the trial for the Icon Air, Airport Heights that would go on to be immortalized in Martin Scorsese's movie The, God, the Good Fella. So, mob, I don't know. The feds keep on saying it's dead and buried. I don't see any evidence of it. I see that it's still growing. It's still there. Something might not be right. I don't know. Two. As always, we look at the unforgettable uh, profession in law enforcement that uh, you don't hear anything about, and that's corrections. The silent partner in the car, like I like to call them, in the squad car. 
And we have another interesting article, which I have said before, I'm very concerned about and I'm, uh, the alarming rate of what this is happening, but another attack on a correctional officer. And <clears throat> coming from Corrections One, Rikers CO suffers broken nose, burns an inmate attack. New York, an accused murderer threw hot water at a jail officer and broke his nose, making it the latest in a series of violent attacks against correctional staff. Javon Johnson, a reported blood member who is in jail on murder and assault charges, tossed hot water at the face of the officer inside the Otis Bottom Correctional Center on Rikers Island on Saturday at 9.08. According to the Internal Corrections Department records of the incident, Johnson also punched the officer in the face. The records show the officer whose name is being withheld by the Daily News due to security concerns, was taken to New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. Medical staff there diagnosed him with a broken nose and a first and second degree burns to his chest, according to the union representative of jail officers. Growing trend. You see it out in the street. <clears throat> officers, police officers being attacked, uh, physically punching, stabbing, shooting, pissed on, you name it. And now the trend goes into the prisons and jails of America where COs are being attacked. It's an alarming rate. If your agency has still not alerted you of this, there's something wrong. So I'd be more so on the defensive because I think there's something here. Right now, I can re I've read two stories in the last two episodes with these idiots from the Bloods, so okay, and happening in Rikers Island. Well, well, one, two, that's a trend. Three. And our last uh, news article for the day, and <clears throat> for, surprisingly enough, we didn't have uh, Mayor De uh, Big Bird. Didn't come out on this one. Well, I wonder <gasps> what happened. Must be on vacation or something. But he, he's always getting in trouble. Uh, our last article here, and we we, we flip over to uh, Fort Lauderdale, and a Broward County judge on Friday issued what is thought to be the Florida's first order temporary removing guns from a person under Florida new gun control law. Four firearms and 267 rounds of ammunition were ordered removed from a 56-year-old Lighthouse Point man who experts determined was potentially a risk to himself and or others. The gun and ammunition have been temporarily removed from the man under the state's new risk protection law, which is also sometimes called red flag legislation. Lighthouse Point City Attorney Michael Surillo confirmed. Although the man was also taken to a hospital for involuntary psychiatric treatment under the State Baker Act, the civil ruling removed his access to guns and ammunition was granted under the, under the new legislation which permits removal of guns from per people who have not been committed but are deemed a potential risk to themselves or others according to the order signed by Broward Chief Judge Jack Tutter. Now, what are we seeing here? Well, this is the first. It's uh, 
a first of a trend. Obviously, it's going to keep on going. It's going to keep on growing. But here's one thing you're not going to notice, which we have noticed from our friends on the left. It dies here. Our friends on the left would have called all their communist friends, and there would have been 100 lawsuits. But you won't see that here, folks, because law-abiding citizens know how to act. All right, so that wraps up our new segment on El Police Radio. I got to get rid of this bugler. He must be from the honor guard. MCIC, an alarming rate, an alarming rate. Law enforcement officers are going around looking like 1% bikers. They're looking the lifestyle. But, of course, they're saying they're living another one. Now, I'm not accusing any of them, and I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong. They're riding the highways. They're letting the wind blow through their hair, and they're living maybe a fantasy that they can't, be, they can't live today. I don't know what it is. But what I am saying is from when I first started in law enforcement, there was only one law enforcement group that were motorcycle conscious, and they really didn't go around acting or calling themselves one percenters. They wore a vest, but there was no, you couldn't distinguish the two. And they were called the Blue Knights. They've been around for a long, long time. And we're going to post information about them on El Police Radio on the show notes. And they've been around a long time. they got chapters all over the world. So when you saw them, you saw their vest that they would wear, I, I was never confused. Could they really? I don't know. Let me see. Let me look, um, look at them from the side. No, I knew who they were. They were, they were involved in charity, and everybody kind of knew who they were. <clears throat> and if you didn't, uh, well, you know, there were all their... Uh, motorcycle groups that you knew weren't resembling the one percenters. But now we have a growing list, and this is just a few folks. I, I could be I could literally generate pages of these names. But you have the sworn few, the Punishers with six thousand members, Thin Blue Line, the Defenders, Peacemakers. And the Iron Iron Legacy, uh, oh, and the Brotherhood of Iron. And but the Iron Legacy, <clears throat> they kind of boast that they have law enforcement and other people in the general public are kind of all mixed together. And what's alarming to me is, I understand the part about being in a club. I understand the part about being a motorcyclist. I understand all that. Please believe me. Uh, even the association that I'm currently starting up again and as leader, and uh, I was associated with for many, many years, the Latino Officers Association of Florida. Back in the day, they had a little uh, club, and they were motorcycle, uh, a club within the organization itself, primarily through the west coast of Florida. And... Um, they rode around and, you know, they had a little fun. But uh, they never distinguished themselves to look like one percenters. 
And after a while, you know, they got the back to back to business, back to the business at hand of being a law enforcement officer. And the bikes went into the garage. That was it. They grew over it. But the growing trend has been getting bigger, bigger, worse and worse. I've read you just a little tidbit of these groups and how many are out there. And there's a lot more than what I'm discussing. Dis- discussing. I want to mix it up with disgusted. And the question is why? The question is, do law enforcement agencies have policies against this? Should they have policies against this? If you haven't done anything wrong, then why create a policy? If Are they doing anything wrong? So let's start off with that general question. Well, primarily, no, they're not. Um, they resemble a group of troublemakers. Well, I could resemble a troublemaker if I went to the supermarket, you know, looking a little, little, little rough around the collar, but it's not breaking any laws looking like that. But the issue is, why are they looking like that? What, what is the objective? Could they be confused by real outlaw motorcycle groups as um, a territorial threat. Now, there have been incidents between law-abiding, we'll say, MC clubs with law enforcement officers uh, part of their group and um, these uh, other clubs. Now, here's one article that I found. I, I did locate some others, and um, but then there was a subscription problem, and if I post it on lpoliceradio.com, if you're not a subscriber, you know, you couldn't get on there. So we'll stick to this one. And this is coming from CBS News, and it's dated June 7th, 2015. Police club and biker gangs, uh, blurry lines drawing concerns. Concord, New Hampshire, police officers and outlaw biker gangs often stand on common ground. Both attract the young and adventurous who value value order, discipline, and brotherhood. And on weekends, tens of thousands of cops routinely trade their cruiser and badges for choppers and club colors. The bond doesn't mean a free pass for criminal motorcycle gangs. But even some within law enforcement worry too many, too many officers believe bikers are just misunderstood Robin Hoods. Now, the story goes on, and it goes a little bit on a tangent about officers, you know, the kick the cop in the, in the shins type of routine. And it talks about one percenters and who these clubs are and, and how the FBI and the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms have labeled them criminal enterprises. And then it goes back to these police uh, groups and their chiefs and certain chiefs of police, how they're a little disturbed about uh, officers in their rank and file might be a part of something that resembles a 1% club. But there was an interview, at the end of this uh, interview, there's a section or a paragraph 
with uh, uh, Dobbins, and he was an undercover ATF agent who infiltrated a 1% motorcycle outlaw motorcycle gang, and we'll post his book on uh, lpoliceradio.com. And I'll actually post my interview I did with him. Gosh, I can't remember, but it was like 2,000-something ago. And we'll post it on there uh, as well. But he says in the article that when he was undercover, a lot of cop groups would come around these 1% clubs looking to befriend them. And, of course, the, the bikers uh, would have nothing to do with them because they were cops. And at the end of his uh, paragraph or the interview, he basically says these cop groups just don't get it. Uh, that's my point. What are they missing or what am I missing that they're doing wrong? Now, from the get-go, this thing has troubled me. And let me talk to you a little bit about 1% groups. And they've been around for many, many uh, years. Obviously, we know that, 30s, 40s, up until now. But what they were back in the day... 40s, 50s, and so forth, compared to what they are today, are two different things. What they're dealing in today is substances that are a little mind-boggling. So for anybody to even consider consider doing that would be alarming, or resembling that, better said, excuse me for that. And these groups now are into methamphetamines. They're into um, an array of drug distribution, uh, violence, working for other uh, criminal organizations and so forth. Right here where I live in Tampa Bay, uh, there was not too long ago, back in December of uh, 17, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, in the middle of rush hour traffic, bang, 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 you're dead as they drove off in the sunset in, on two motorcycles. Police later arrested two members of the 69ers, which I found out are here in Florida. They're originally from uh, New York City. And they killed a alleged member of the outlaws. The article goes on. To talk about that in the fire department of Pasco County, there's a captain that is in a pagan motorcycle crew, crew, and there are two firefighters in Tampa, or Hillsboro, and they are associated with the outlaw motorcycle crew. So... Uh, and then they go on and talk about how the agencies couldn't stop them because there was no written policy from fire departments against this. It was in police, but not in fire. Now, in the state of Florida, at least I can tell you, that there is protocol from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement handed down to all law enforcement agencies in the state, no association with known felons, period. You can get that's a don't know, you can get in trouble. Now, of course, Cousin Vinny might be a little different because it's family and you're gonna have to run into 
him or her or whatever sooner or later. But here I am, I'm playing the role, and I'm going to places that I might meet up with certain members that I'm not allowed to associate with, but I may try to associate with. See the problem, folks? Now, I'm not bashing any of these guys. I think they're, they're, they're doing the right thing. They're keeping their head straight, and they're out there having fun. They are law enforcement officers. They risk their lives every day. And if they want to live that life, so be it. What I have a problem with is why are you trying to resemble something that's crooked? I, that's what I, I can't get my head around. You can ride around, you and your friends. Why do I have to Why do I have to have a patch, and I gotta put a bottom rocker, and I gotta put my state on it? Some of these uh, outlaw groups allegedly have wars over bottom rockers with states on it, and now I'm riding around with my little colors and my thing, and I might piss off some some crackhead. And one of these groups that wants to take a shot at me. That's alarming to me. And this subject needs to a close examination from law enforcement agencies around the country. I could have came up with a long list of who they were, but I didn't do that. I chose not to do it because they're not really doing anything wrong. But in your agency, if you're listening to me, does your agency have an actual standing policy to stay away from this? And if they don't, why not? And if they're caught up in something, what happens? I mean, uh, it could happen. Let me, let me read you this story. All right, from the New York Post, and it is dated February 2nd, 2016. Lower Body Motorcycle Club keeps messing with a real biker gang. Denver. Let's open this up. One of the nation's fastest growing motorcycle clubs is composed of largely of military, police officers, and prison guards. It also embraces the regala of traditional traditions of outlaw biker gangs, a choice that has provoked deadly clashes with other groups. The Iron Order Club insists it is a law-abiding, charitable brotherhood of family of family men who just like to ride. But experts say it's a member of are increasingly becoming in, in gay, entangled in violence with other biker groups, blurring the lines between professionals who are sworn to uphold the law and biker culture with a long history of criminal activity. It's almost like they are playing dress up on a weekend and acting out with their perception of an outlaw gang said David Devaru, I must have screwed up his last name, oh well, a, spokes, a spokesman for the National Council of Clubs, which represents hundreds of motorcycle groups. They've created aggressive situation with other motorcycle clubs in opposition to the culture. The latest skirmish happened Saturday when an Iron Order and a Mongol motorcycle club clashed in a brawl that left one Mongol member dead. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing this? Dead. Two groups blame each other for the, the inciting of violence of the Colorado Motorcycle Expo. So here you have 
this one group um, that the article talks about, the Iron Order, and uh, supposedly it's uh, an ongoing thing with this group and with the real outlaws, or, you know, the real bad guys or the one percenters or whatever you want to want to call them. And there's a whole list of them, and pol police intelligence have known who they are for many, many years as well. So they're no secret to uh, law enforcement. But the question still remains, why? Why? And is this being upheld by the higher brass? So we need to keep our eye on this, folks. I think this is going to keep on going. I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. And I think we need to pay attention to what's occurring out there with these groups. If you're a part of these groups, just keep an, um, an eye out that it might get worse. Is it worth your career? I don't think so. But that's my, just my little humble opinion. So now, folks, it's time for the 09 training tip. So many agencies out there, especially in the correctional field, are very confused when it comes to what force is. Let me kind of paint the picture here. Some agencies actually believe that if you kind of handcuff somebody in custody, that that could mean force because they don't have free movement. And sometimes they require officers to document that behavior. Or sometimes they require that they go to the clinic to seek medical clearance because the handcuffs are on. Does this sound crazy and wacky to you? Well, it does to me, but it is a lived experience. There are many agencies that because the people on the top don't understand force, they believe that's force. A use of force or a handcuffing procedure are two different things. Handcuffing a willing participant is not force. If I tell the subject, put your hands behind your back, I take out my handcuffs, I cuff him, and I escort him to wherever he's supposed to be going, that, my friends, is not a use of force. But if I tell them, put your hands behind your back, and just before I go to cuff them, they kind of resist. And I've got to kind of little forcibly place those handcuffs on them. Then that becomes a use of force. As ironic as this conversation is, law enforcement and police officers around the United States have no idea what I just talked about. But it's a growing, growing fungus within the correctional facility because of the rule of care, custody, control. So if it is a unwanted touch, that means there's a form of resistance, then that is a use of force. If it's a willing participant, that's not force, folks. Now, you're probably going to run into your neighborhood knucklehead supervisor so you heard it here, but don't disobey the order.
become an educated consumer and bring that back to your supervisor. We always have challenges in life. And sometimes we don't expect the challenge that we're about to get. But it's in front of us. How do I deal with it? Well, you can deal with it with your own intelligence, your own aptitude, your own skill. But I don't know if that's going to do you a bit of good. Because what is the adversity? The adversity could be a sickness. What are you going to do, beat up the sickness? The adversity could be a loved one that's gone. How do you deal with that? So when we deal with these things, you've got to, as we've always said in all our episodes, you train up, but you forget to train up in the spiritual world. I know somebody that's ready and willing to guide you, to back you up, to have your six all the way through this journey. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's never failed. He's the same that he was before. He's the same today, and he'll be the same in the future. His love and his understanding is unsurmountable. We can't even begin to think about it. But all you have to do to have that relationship with this God called Jesus is simply reach out to him. How? Simply say, I'm a sinner. I've done things that I shouldn't. Confess what they are, not to another man, but to Jesus himself. He doesn't necessarily listen to your words, but he feels your heart. And if your heart is right, you've been forgiven. And now he's ready to take that journey with you. Here's a verse I want to read to you. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Who am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about Jesus and everything he went through. Now, let's reverse that role. Let's take him out as the living God, and let's place you in that role. And you're going to be despised, sorrowed, have grief, spit on, cursed at, lied upon. And at the end, they kill you slowly. Well, I know one thing that does that to you on an everyday, and that's sin. It's killing you slowly. It's convincing you of all kinds of things that you have forgiveness for. But all you have to do is reach out to that one and only God, Jesus, and he will have your six forevermore. How do I know? Because I lived it and I'm living it. Oh, it's not easy on this side either. The road here is narrow and difficult. But if you continue and persevere, there is victory at the end. What do we have up next, folks? 
We always have an episode. But before we get to that episode issue, how do you connect with us? Now, we've talked about always lpoliceradio.com. You can just zip on there, connect real quick. You scroll down to the bottom and you can see our icons down there. And through those icons, you can hit those things and it'll connect. On the um, Twitter account, which is Alpha Mike 2017, and there I post a lot of uh, information which later becomes show notes on other shows. Remember that when we broadcast uh, these weekly shows, we're kind of uh, about a week behind in the news and things that are happening. So uh, I kind of throw things out there for future shows. It help us. It, it helps me out when I do the the show notes. So if you follow me on on Twitter, Alpha Mike twenty seventeen, there you'll see some of those show notes that are being posted up there. O nine training group. Well, that uh, podcast, uh, as we said, we're going to postpone that. We're doing the training uh, segments here on El Police Radio. A couple of minutes giving you little uh, disclaimers on, on training and some points. And we're going to keep on doing that until we get the other stuff uh, up and running. Now, what we will be doing on the 09TG.com website, we're going to start posting articles on there and certain other training information as well. So keep your eyes on that. We, we are heading towards April, and uh, so we're going to try to get something on there uh, by the end of March, and we'll, we'll, of course, let you know what exactly we're going to throw up there. But we always have content, and that's what we're trying to always do, create content. So what happens on lpoliceradio.com? What's up next? Well... April 5th, 2018, episode 29, I refuse. I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about associations, law enforcement associations. Why do they exist? Should they exist? And is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? How can I grow from that experience? There are... Many law enforcement organization groups that have been around for many, many years, they mostly are on ethnic fiber. That means my heritage, my color, my sex orientation, that's my group, and I associate that to my profession, which is law enforcement. So, is that constitute a hate crime nowadays? I mean... We are so freaking sensitive as a nation, it could be, and it could get a little ugly. But a lot of these organizations have stemmed around for a long time, and we're going to talk about uh, on on this uh, podcast, I Refuse. And it's just a funny take on I would not be a member of an organization that would have me as a member of the old Groucho Marx uh, routine that he used to do. But some of these groups are not like the MC groups. We're not resembling anybody looking the thug lifestyle. But no, these groups are out there for a specific purpose. 
Sometimes it's to defend its members, not necessarily under the collective bargaining agreement, but under ethnic terminologies because those unions won't touch issues that deal with nationalities or EEOC cases of discrimination. And some of these groups also do wonderful work when it comes to charity. But some of these groups sometimes are stuck in, a, in their past. Some of them, they do some great freaking parties, especially around Christmas. But is that all they're for? Is that all they're good for? We're going to look at that, my friends, and much more on always a series of lpoliceradio.com. Now, before we wrap it up, I want to add a little bit more on the issue of the MC and the issue with law enforcement especially. They are, here's some alarming things, and let's try to understand what a one percenter is. The FBI has categorized them as a criminal enterprise. They have gone from an unsophisticated group, maybe in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, a little bit more, 80s, 90s, and up until today, very sophisticated. So don't allow the long hair, the, the outfit, fool you. They specialize in all kinds of areas. They do intelligence. They hire uh, private investigators to find things out. Let me give you an example of how they operate. Let's say that there is a convention, and we'll make something up. I don't even know if it exists. The National Detectives, the International Detectives uh, Association, and it's being held in a specific city anywhere in the United States. Of course, that association is going to publicize that maybe three, four months in advance, get people to buy tickets, you know, and get their expenses in order so they can show up to this specific uh, venue. So this criminal group, the MCs, the one percenters, have time now to get their associates, their women associates, to go apply Usually they have clean records, apply for jobs there. It could be waitress, it could be housekeeping, it could be an array of jobs. Uh, let's say they get one, two, three, four, or five of them uh, through, the, through that, that period before this convention is about to take place. Once the convention uh, falls into the date and time that it's supposed to start, they start gathering intelligence by listening, by sweeping rooms, all kinds of things. People throw things away, looking through the garbage. They come out with sensitive information. A lot of law enforcement groups have been warned about some of this stuff, but it still continues to happen. This is the sophistication that they have. They speak in code. They communicate in code. They're a lot more sophisticated than your normal run-of-the-mill criminal enterprise. 
So don't let the appearance fool you. Now, here's a couple of things that are concerning about a 1% group. It used to be the big four. You had the Hells Angels, the Outlaws, the Pagans, and the Banditos. Now, you just can add on to that and add on to that. You know, Mongols, this, that. We'll be here all day. The list has grown so large. And all of them have kind of like the same business plan, if for lack of a better term. But now you have a growing segment of them that are retiring. Hmm. Now, usually we would believe as citizens that you couldn't retire from a criminal enterprise if they were, in fact, a criminal enterprise. Now, what they have done is they have deliberated in court very successfully, especially the Hells Angels, where they have told their side of the story and they've won in federal court that the club is a legitimate club, but the club has certain people in the club that are criminals, but not everybody is a criminal. Now, that's just not a saying. Because if it was the same, the government would have proved them wrong a long time ago. So within the society, there are people that do different things, right? Some might be in criminal enterprises, just like they say, out of their own words. Some are not. Some are working nine to fives. Some are doing enforcement. Some are doing intelligence. Some are doing, some are doing, some are doing. So basically you're creating the criminal enterprise. Many years ago, the FBI recorded a conversation between a 1% outlaw biker group and members of the mafia, the Italian mafia. And the mafia would introduce a member of the mafia, which is a maid member, as a friend of ours. And if he wasn't, he's a friend of, uh, of yours. But the bikers would call each other's brothers. And there's a big distinct, distinction between friend and brother. These people, their mindset is completely about the group, where other criminal organizations, they're in it for themselves. Now, you have seen in some MC groups, of course, the ratting and the cooperating with government and so forth because that's what uh, the Justice Department does well, get people to inform. Now, the retirees, the ones that are saying, I retired, there's two ways to retire. There's going out good and going out bad. Well, some of them are going out good. That means that you can keep certain emblems or logos of the organization. You got to turn in your colors and that goes back to the club because the property rights of that logo, it's copyrighted, it goes back to the club if you're retiring, leaving. But tattoos and other things and certain men believe, you know, certain things that you've acquired while becoming a member of that club, you can retain it if you go out good. That's a basic vote that says that your retirement has been recognized. 
Some go out bad for whatever reason. And they're told to remove all tattoos. Any logos have to be returned. And they disassociate any recognition of that individual being part of the club or anything that they've done in the club. Now, let's concentrate on this a little bit more. Either it's legitimate, and it is. These guys are really retiring and they're really moving on. But why? Because you have to give appearances that this is a normal club. If everybody that wants to leave the club goes out in a body bag, this isn't a normal club, folks. So obviously they've been lawyered up. You come up with these ideas through attorneys, through lawyers. Here's another thing about 1% Club that you're seeing a lot of lately. In their MC walk of life, they somehow stumbled and fell upon Jesus. And now they're preaching. And they're ordained ministers, and they're walking with God. Now, I'm not here to judge anybody to say who is and who isn't. I don't play God. That's not my role. I bless all of them. But that situation is between them and God. But some of them don't leave the lifestyle. And they say, well, it's easier for me to connect with those members if I stay within the lifestyle. Yes, maybe no. Paul said, to the Greek I was the Greek, to the Hebrew I was the Hebrew. So yes, there is a blending type of phenomena that happens. But that's in your sermon, not in your walk of life. Your walk of life is moved by the experience of the Holy Spirit. And light can have no association with darkness. So I'm not here to judge, but I'm saying that's something else. What does that show authorities and the general public? We're just a normal group of people. And that's happening a lot, too. So many are leaving the lifestyle. They're walking away from it. And as we said, there's good and there's bad, which is, I guess, gives that normal appearance. But you're seeing more and more of it. You didn't see it before. Now, my personal belief, these criminal organizations, these MC groups have an array of members, not all the members, just as they say, are criminals, not all of them. Everybody has a role. Some, that role is within the law. Some, that role is with outside the law. They've created their way of life to provide for the entity, which is the club. For right now, They've got the United States government on its heels trying to figure this one out with RICO statutes where they've applied it to other criminal organizations like the Italian Mafia. They can't really make it stick on these clubs. They've taken away their jackets or their colors and their logos, which are copyrighted, and the government has had to turn them back into the clubs. The clubs have sued because they're copyrighted. They're walking within corporate America's laws and business principles. 
they've been lawyered up to continue existing. So now when law enforcement tries to chum up to that enterprise, as J. Rob Dobbins said, cops just don't get it. But eventually, cops will get it. And that's the scary notion. Why do cops want to become a one percenter? I don't have an answer to that. I believe in their right to ride motorcycles, be free, remove that stress from their lives. But I kind of disagree. My own personal opinion is they got to look like a one percenter in order to get it done. You don't. As I stated in the beginning of this episode, the Blue Knights existed for many, many years, and they still do. Nobody ever confused them with being an MC group. But some of these new uh, Leo groups that are toting the MC, they're confusing the hell out of a lot of people. I'm going to post on lpoliceradio.com a conversation between a regular person, uh, actually two regular individuals in California, and they're getting gas or something in some dirt road area, and they run into four Hell's Angels. And one of them has curiosity, so he, he steps up to them and says, can I ask you guys a question? And they were cordial. And they wanted to know about the little logo on their jacket versus their own jacket, which said MC. And the explanation from the Hells Angels was that of the one percenter. And he he went back and where to look it up and and understand what you're doing. I I kind of understood he was educating the citizen. Because what he was basically saying is, You're, this is our world. We wrote the rules. We know the rules. And I'm going to post that because it's going to give you a little bit better understanding of what a one percenter is. Folks, if you're in law enforcement or you're considering law enforcement, ride your motorcycle. Enjoy your time. Do everything you want to do. If you want to hang out with a club, Hang out with a club. There's a lot of good clubs. But the one percenter, look, eventually you're going to run into one or two people that are going to mistake who you are. It could be a good guy or it could be a bad guy. But what I can tell you is that misunderstanding can cost you a lot. It's been my pleasure to be your host on El Police Radio. Don't forget, uh, episode number 29 up and uh, we're going into April. April 5th, uh, episode number 29, I refuse. And in the meantime, be safe, looking up, fired up, and knowing that there's hope for tomorrow. See you soon. 